I Read Comics, show number 77. So today, I've got two things to review, one thing to talk about, and some other advice to give. So let's see. The thing that I'm going to put at the end of the podcast is a really great audio performance by Stan Lee of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. He did this for Quick Stop Entertainment, and it was posted for Halloween. I thought it was just a wonderful performance. You can go look at it on YouTube if you want to. And there is some amusement in seeing Stan sitting at a desk acting it out as best he can, as only he can, really. But I thought for those of you who didn't have the time to do that, it would be great just to hear him do it. He has a wonderful voice. He does a perfect reading of this, and it's great to hear him say things like evermore in his New York accent with the R's almost gone. So that's going to be at the very end of this, just so that you know. And if you've heard it, then you can just skip over it because there's nothing after that. The one thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit was with the current economic crisis, There are many of you who are probably wondering, how can I cut down on the money I spend on comics? So I gave this some thought, and I have a couple of ideas. The first will be no surprise to people who listen to the show, which is go to your library. My library has a ton of great stuff, and they are willing to order things if you ask them for it. Actually, I live near two libraries. There's one that's in the town that I live in, and then there's another one that's in the next county over, but it's very close. And because of the way it works here, you can have library cards at both libraries. So I do. And the other library has even more stuff. It's a little bit further away, so I don't get there as often. But between the two of them, I would have enough stuff to read, you know, forever, basically. So I encourage you, go to your library, go to the libraries that are closest to you and see what you can get, because there's probably a lot of good stuff. Another thing that you could do is to borrow comics from your friends. I have this feeling, and I don't know how much of it is based in reality, that a lot of comic book people don't like to lend their comics out to their friends to read, and maybe that's because of the, I don't want you putting your fingerprints on my stuff kind of feeling. I am pretty free and easy with lending stuff out, and Logan's been great about lending me stuff to read. So I feel like there's a whole bunch of stuff out there that my friends have that I can borrow and read that I don't have to spend money on. And maybe I will. After I read it, I'll decide that it's so good I want to go out and buy the trade myself just to have it. But you can borrow comics from your friends. Now, the big thing is that you're not going to be keeping up to date on every single thing that comes out. So I might suggest that you need to rethink that strategy. Um, My friend Tony, who blogs now with some other friends of his um, at a really good blog that's called, um, and men shall call it blog, and I'll put a link into that, recently made a decision to cut way down on the stuff on his poll list. And he said he really just went over all the titles and said, am I enjoying this? Do I really want to keep reading this? And do I need to keep reading this now? Maybe it's a title that I used to have to read as soon as it came out, but now it's not so important that I get it the minute it hits the stands on Wednesday. So think about that. Just think, do I really need to have this now? Could I wait until it comes out in trade if it's any good? I think that it's probably most important of all, though, to keep supporting independent comic book artists and Fortunately, a lot of that stuff is now available in other than paper format. So I've talked before about Wowio, and the stuff at Wowio is really great. It's all independent stuff there, and it's free for you to download. 
Viewing it in PDF format, of course, is not as convenient as holding a paper book in your hand, but if you're trying to cut down on your expenses, it's a way to go. Download the thing in PDF and read it, and the creator gets paid for it. That's the big advantage. There are lots of other sites where you can do similar sorts of things. Um, you can download PDFs of comics, or you can at least view previews of them for free to see if you really like it. And then if you think it's really good, you could go and spend the money on it if you wanted to. And lots of indie people have that um, PDFs and, and previews up at their sites. So do continue to do that. Um, torrents. Well, what can I say about torrents? I've torrented tons of stuff myself. And I, I'm really of two minds about it. On one hand, it's great for being able to read something that you can't find anywhere when you really want to do it. It's also a way of tasting things if you're not sure that it's going to be good. So I did that recently with the Silver Surfer, Surfer Requiem miniseries, which I was kind of in doubt about. And I saw it on Torrance and I downloaded it and I read all those issues and I thought, wow, this is really good. And then I bought the, the trade after it came out. So I felt kind of justified in doing that. But you know, it is stealing. <laughs> There's no way of getting around the fact that it is stealing because you're getting something and you're not paying for it. So I can't officially recommend torrents, but I guess you can rationalize it by saying that if you download something and you like it and then you go out and buy it, that makes it okay. Or if you're downloading stuff that you just can't get anywhere because it's something that's long out of print or is only ever available um, as regular pamphlets and not as a trade paperback and you just can't get them at your comic book store, that's more of a rationalization. So you know, they're out there and you can get them if you need to. But those are ways that you could cut down on spending money on comics. Um, nobody wants to not spend money on comics. That's certainly true of me. When I go into a comic book store, I want to buy something, even if it's something I don't really need. I'll look around pretty much until I find something that I, I want to have. Even if I didn't know it when I came into the store, I'll go, okay, I can get this. And then I'm giving money to the comic book store. So anyway, there's some quick advice from me. Now, on a similar topic, I have here um, a copy of a comic book that's called Comic Book Comics, and this is from the guys that brought you Action Philosophers, which we talked about on this very, very show, and it's published by um, Evil Twin Comics, and you can go to their website at eviltwincomics.com, and this is number one, and I'm assuming it's going to be collected into a trade, just like the other ones did. So it's written and researched by Fred Van Lent and illustrated by Ryan Dunleavy. So they are obviously attempting to chronicle the history of comic books right from the very beginning. So you open the first page and it says, Funnies Get Famous, October 18th, 1896. That's where it starts. So it takes you through the, um, I guess, the history of pictures used to communicate uh, satire or humor, because that was very popular in political circles for a long time, and then how that eventually got transformed into sequential art, which is what we call comic books. And as we know, comic books are one of the few truly American forms of art, um, jazz and blues being the other ones. So it goes through names that you probably know, um, people like Windsor McKay, people like... Uh, the um, Siegel and Schuster, obviously you can't leave out Superman, talks about Walt Disney because that was important as well. Um, but the funny thing about it is that it kind of ends up being mostly about Jack Kirby. And that's pretty much okay with me because I love Jack Kirby and I think he was 
very, 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 very important to the history of comics. So I like the fact that it ended up being very Kirby-centric. So as with action philosophers, there's a lot of factual stuff that you probably didn't know. And of course, a lot of stuff that you did know. And I think that they've gone to a lot of trouble to make this accurate in every way. So you'll find lots of pieces of information that you might not have come across before or that correct things that other people had previously thought. So they're going to keep doing this. And there it says comic book comics on sale July 2008. Of course, I don't have it because I haven't been to the comic book store in a while, but it's probably out now. And then in the end, um, they give you a little guide to the world's greatest comic book collection, which has things in it um, like the first ever of a t- type of comic um, and gives their current market value. So, of course, Action Comics number one is in there and The Spirit number one and Crime Does Not Pay number 22. And then they have some honorable mentions for uh, other media that contributed to comics like uh, Gertie the Dinosaur, Windsor McKay, and uh, a few other uh, strips that were in the paper like Little Nemo in Slumberland, the early years of Mutt and Jeff, things like that. So I really enjoyed this comic book a lot. It's really fun. It goes along quickly. And you learn a lot while you're looking at it as well. So if you can find it, I would say go out there and get it. That's one of those independent comics that I think it's worth spending money on because it's good. And it'll learn you something at the same time. So I'm going to take a little break right here. And then I want to come back and talk about um, this great big book that I got, which is called The Best American Comics of 2006. So here's another strategy for saving money on comics. Go to your local Borders or Barnes & Noble and look on the $3 table. You will often find interesting things there. This is where I found this book, The Best American Comics of 2006, edited by Harvey Picard and Anne Elizabeth Moore. Harvey is the guest editor and Anne Elizabeth Moore is the series editor. I thought $3 was a bargain for a book that's almost 300 pages long. And that has a lot of comics from people that I knew, but also lots of comics from people that I didn't know. So I'm going to just touch on the highlights here. I could go through them all one by one, but I think you would get bored really quickly if I did that. So I won't. Um, Let me talk about the ones that I really, really liked. So my favorite thing in the whole book is an excerpt from Justin Hall's True Travel Tales. 
And I've talked about True Travel Tales before. It's a series of comics that he puts out where he actually takes real stories from people and then illustrates them from that person's point of view and in their own words. He says that for this story, he decided to do it differently. And he took the story that um, a friend told him and switched it around a little bit so that the story was being told from the point of view of someone who was there but didn't tell him the story. It's called La Rubia Loca. And it's about a trip on the green tortoise bus down to Mexico. So for people who don't know, the green tortoise is a hippie travel agency. It's a bus. They have several buses that will take you to different places for next to nothing. And you get these great vacations, but it's all communal living. And you're on a bus essentially with a bunch of other people. So as long as you don't mind living like a hippie and sleeping in tents and sleeping bags for a while, you can get some pretty cool vacations. So this is about a trip down to Mexico. Our protagonist in this story is a woman named Sarah, who's very depressed at this point in her life and thinks that she might even kill herself eventually. And she meets another woman on the trip named Helena, who's a a Swiss German woman who is on this vacation because she has to leave the United States so she can come back and get her visa stamped again. Turns out that Helen is crazy and she is crazy maybe because she's off her meds or maybe because she's addicted to something else or maybe she's just crazy. So the trip turns into a test really for Sarah about how much she can keep Helena from hurting herself and from hurting other people and getting her to someplace safe that is back to the United States because apparently it's really, really bad to be committed to a loony bin when you're in Mexico. So she and the two drivers of the bus have to manage this situation until they can get Helena to a safe place. And it is a challenge for Sarah because she's never had to do this for anyone before. And the wonderful part is that it really shakes her out of her depression and puts her into a place where she has to care for someone who has a lot more problems than she does. And that's what she comes to realize over the course of the story that her problems and her issues are nothing compared to what some other people have. And it does give her a reason to find hope and to continue with her life. And the way it's told is just really wonderful. It's black and white. Mexico, you don't actually see that much of it because a lot of the time is on the beach. So there's not much to see there or they're on the bus. There's a couple scenes in town. There's one on a boat. But really, it's focusing on the people. And there's a lot of close-ups of people's faces. And Justin has just a wonderful way of drawing people's faces and their eyes, especially. He's great at drawing eyes. And you can just look at a close-up of someone when you can see pretty much only their eyes and tell so much about what they're feeling and what they're thinking from his illustrations. And what's remarkable, too, is the transformation of, of Helena. When you see her in the beginning, she looks like just, you know, your average sort of blonde woman. And by the end, because she hasn't slept and because she's been just crazy and raving and and trying to hurt herself. She looks really, really different. She just looks like she's been through hell and it has a happy ending, which is good. Nobody dies. And Sarah does find a a reason to go on with things. So I just love this story and I must've read it. I don't know, six or seven times by now because it's just really, really wonderful. So I love true travel, travel tales. And I love this story a lot. Um, Let's see. What are some of the other things that I liked in here? Um, There's a section from Love and Rockets, a little piece called Day by Day with Hopi. And it's just a little tiny excerpt from the current ongoing Hopi story where she gets glasses and that's pretty much it. And it's 
just typical love and rocket stuff, which I really dig. And it shows a little humorous incident with a serious ending to it, as they usually have. There's also an excerpt in here from Unlovable by Esther Pearl Watson, which I think I talked about way, way back when I started the show. Um, her story is that she found this diary from a girl who was in high school in the 80s. And she found this in a restroom as she was driving across the country and took it and decided to make a comic out of it. So this is one small illustrated piece that really proves that truth is stranger than fiction. And it's really funny. And the illustrations are good, too. Um, there's a piece in here by Chris Ware. And I love Chris Ware. But I couldn't read this. And I couldn't read it because it was too small. I needed a magnifying glass. And even with a magnifying glass, it was really hard to read it. It's beautifully illustrated. And it's in color. And it's just too small to read. So I wonder how big it was. It was in McSweeney's. And then they had to reduce it down to the size of this book. And this book is like, I don't know, five by seven. No, it's got to be bigger than that. It's probably seven by eight. But still, I couldn't read it. <laughs> it's really annoying. So make them bigger, please, for people who have problems seeing things that are really small. I mean, I know I'm old, but I'm not that old. <sighs> Another piece that I like here is called um, Passing Before Life's Very Eyes, and it's by Kurt Wolfgang. And it's a almost wordless until the end view of what might happen when you die. And it's a man's spirit leaving his body and he kind of goes back and sees the things that have happened to him until he realizes that, hey, this isn't actually the way it happens. And then he begins to question what's really happening to him and what really happens after you die. And he meets up with a younger self who enlightens him a little bit. And it's got, um, it's color, but it's kind of two-tone color. So it's white with a orange uh, and really kind of goofy illustrations that range from realistic to completely fantastic, like when the two of them are hot tubbing in his actual head. But it's great, and I love it that it deals with questions of mortality and religion and what it means to be alive and what it means to be dead. That was really awesome. Um, another one that I thought was great is a story called nakedness and power and it's by um seth tabachman Teresa turner and lee brownhill and this is about women in kenya in the 90s who were trying to help out the labor unions for the guys who um, worked on the oil rigs and trying to prevent the american companies from abusing people quite so much and it's about how in their culture um, women's nakedness is power over men and it causes the men to feel shame for a woman to expose her vagina to a man who has made her angry the weapon of nakedness is said to cause impotence madness and death it is a source of lifelong shame for a man to be confronted this way so they used their own local power to try to make things better and they did and it's a wonderful story of you know the personal is political and localized resistance can actually make a difference and it's done in a, a great woodcut style um which is very stark um but it's it's great and the illustrations are very evocative kind of mixing some african motifs with um what people look like so i really thought that was great and very nice to see some really political stuff there's a lot of silly stuff in here as well but i like seeing some more serious things um, I will say a couple things about some pieces that I liked. Uh, there's a long one in here that's called 33, and it's taken from a longer piece called Tricked by Alex Robinson. And it's in this particular thing, we see a guy who's working at a diner uh, being reunited with a daughter that he abandoned a long time ago. She's now in her 20s. And they're meeting for the first time and kind of 
getting to know each other and it's very awkward. So as I read in the blurb, this is from a much longer piece. The problem that I had with this piece is as nice as it is, I didn't get any of the stuff that was really relevant. And I had to read the blurb by the author to know exactly what was going on here. So as it turns out, <clears throat> the father is gay. And that was why he left the marriage was so that he could, you know, live his life honestly as a gay man. But that's not obvious at all. It took me like four times reading it through to actually realize that. And then I read the blur. I was like, oh, okay, he is gay. But you don't get that at all. There aren't enough clues to help you understand it. And his relationship with some of the secondary characters is also not clear. So I just felt like I'd been plopped into the middle of a story that I didn't know anything about. I liked what happened in this, but it wasn't enough for me to really get it. So I got to thinking about this and I'm wondering when you do an anthology, do you only include pieces that really stand alone that are written as single page stories or stories that are meant to be completely on their own? Or do you include longer pieces like this to get people interested in whatever the thing is? Like, you know, I am actually kind of interested in this longer thing called Tricked and I'd like to go and find it and see if the longer story is really good and what's going on with it. But as a piece in an anthology, I found it very unsatisfying because I just couldn't get enough out of it. So then that got me thinking about the Love and Rockets piece, you know, I know Love and Rockets backwards and forwards and I read it all the time. If I didn't know it, would I be as frustrated by the little piece of Hopi story that's in here to say, wow, they should have put more or you shouldn't have put it in at all if you weren't going to give us enough information about this character. So I just don't know. I have the same problem with the story that immediately follows 33, which is called Missing and it's by Jessica Abel and it's from a longer piece she has called La Perdida. And it's about a woman who is in South America um, and she's bored and she doesn't have any money. She's kind of waiting around for her boyfriend to come home and it's what she's trying to do to keep herself amused. And it's very realistic. Um, she has a confrontation with a neighbor and there's a huge subplot here about um, a mutual friend who's missing. He's been kidnapped and trying to figure out what's happened to him. Again, I felt like I was plopped down into the middle of a story, not really knowing what was going on and not having enough information to piece together what these relationships were supposed to be from these people. So I kind of liked it was here. Um, there are parts of it that I actually didn't like at all, which is that this woman has a, a boyfriend who apparently doesn't really treat her like a girlfriend and he might be hanging around with some drug dealers and she's just basically waiting around for him. And it's clear he doesn't care very much about her. He doesn't show it anyway. And she's having arguments with him when he's not there, which is very funny. And then in the end, she goes to bed, wakes up, he's in the bed, she cuddles up with him. When she wakes up in the morning, he's gone again. And it's it's just a story I've seen too many times before about someone who's fooling themselves, a woman who's fooling herself about what kind of relationship she has with this guy and that she's she defends him to someone else and it's clear that he's just, you know, maybe a low life jerk. I don't, there's not enough. I can't tell because I don't know enough about him. I can tell from this story that he doesn't really care about her and that she's wasting her time with him. And that makes me very frustrated when I see that in a story like again. Anyway, so let me see if I can find some other things that were standalone that I really liked. Well, the last one is very long, so I'll get to that in a second. Oh, here's one. This is a story called Rabbit Head and it's by Rebecca Dart. And there are some really cool things about it. And then a, a thing that bothered me personally, so I'll separate those two. 
she tells this story, which is set in some kind of fantastical universe where our protagonist is a woman with a rabbit head and where bits of goop come alive and there are these really weirdly shaped bugs and animals and things eat each other. And she has a horse that has kind of a weird snail head. So it starts off with three panels right in the middle of the page, kind of horizontal, and then it goes along a couple pages and then some things happen and some storylines split off. So then we have three panels that go simultaneously across the page telling three different stories at the same time. And then more stuff splits off. So then we've got five stories that are going across the page and then even more stories split off so that we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven stories that are all going along across the page at the same time. And they're parallel, but they don't really have a lot to do with each other. And then at the end, she kind of draws them all back together through little intersections of the action. It's very cool. Uh, it's black and white, and it's drawn in a very Salvador Dali-esque way, really weirdly limbed monsters. It's not frightening. Some of it's a little disgusting, personally. And then it resolves itself back literally where it started at the beginning. The thing I didn't like about it is that the protagonist, who's a woman with a rabbit head, is really abused. I mean, she's not raped, but her ears get cut off and she gets um, beaten up and it's not really clear why all this is happening. And she dies in the end. Sorry, not giving anything away. But I don't understand why she needed to be abused like that. And it made me kind of sick. So that made it hard for me to read and to get through that to appreciate the coolness of the comic. So that's the personal part of it. You may not be similarly affected. Let's see. You know, most of it's black and white. There's not too much color in here. There's a really good story by Joe Sacco, who does news journalism, and this is called Complacency Kills, and it's about some time that he spent with American troops in Iraq, and it really illustrates the point that, like police work, a lot of soldiering is a lot of boredom with moments of terror interspersed. That's exactly what this is about. So it's great to see this slice of what it's really like to be over there and how you can be friends with people who might in the next instant be killed. So it, it's great. It's a really good story. Um, and it's very, very timely because, of course, there still is a war in Iraq. There are a bunch of one-pagers in here that are kind of funny. There's one by Rick Geary about uh, passing up an opportunity to sleep with someone that you work with, which is kind of funny. Um, and a lot of other stuff that, that's either a slice of lifey or little takes on things, which I thought were really good. And then the last thing, which, which well, there's two things. Um, Oh, there's a Linda Barry story in here, I forgot, called Two Questions, and it's about her struggle with producing art and how hard it is when you doubt yourself and you lose the wonderful feeling that you get from creating something and how good it feels just to put art down on the paper. So I love that because I love Linda Barry. There's a very long piece in here called... 13 Cats of My Childhood by Jesse Recklaw, and it is the story of all these different cats he had, but it's really the story of his family, um, his weird dysfunctional family, and how they had good times and how they had bad times, but how it was all kind of intertwined with the cats that they had, and there's some sad stuff in there, but I really like that, um, and I like the idea of telling a family story through the pets that you have. And then at the very end, we have a Robert Crumb story, which is called Walk in the Streets. 
And this was from Zap Comics, and it's a reminiscence that he has about what it was like growing up in his extremely weird and dysfunctional family. And if you know anything about Robert Crumb, you know that, um, yes, in fact, his family was completely fucked up. So this is um, about how he and his brother Charles would walk around at night and talk about philosophy and um, generally just try to figure out what was going on in life and how it took him a long time to get over the thing. Well, you know, if you know Crumb, none of this is going to be news to you. It's just another view of stuff that happened to him and how he got over it and things like that. And it's, it's always nice to see his work because it's so intricately drawn. So many wonderful things in it. So on the whole, you know what? This book was three bucks. It was totally worth three bucks and I probably would have paid more for it. It retails for $22. That's what it says on the back published by Houghton Mifflin. But you know what? Three bucks. It's good. It's good. So if you go to your border store in the next couple of months, I bet you could find this book for three bucks or maybe even two bucks if they're really trying to get rid of it. So I can definitely recommend that you go out there and you buy this book. So let me wrap it up for now by turning things over to Stan Lee, who's now going to read his version of The Raven. He does it in impeccable style. And I know it's a little bit late for Halloween, but you can never get too much of this. If you want to see the video, you can go over to Quick Stop Entertainment. And I think it's also been posted on YouTube. Um, it looks like it's in two parts. And at Quick Stop, you can view the whole thing. So until next time, Excelsior. Now, years ago, I knew this poem by heart. I could have said it backwards, forwards, sideways. Right now, just to play safe, I googled it from the um, internet, and I've got it in front of me, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to read some of it. But for better or for worse, this is Edgar Allan's Poe, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, first published in 1845, and now read by... <laughs> by Stan Lee in 2008, and here we go. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, rapping at my chamber door. "'Only this, and nothing more. "'Oh, distinctly I remember. "'It was on that bleak December, "'and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. "'From eagerly I wished the morrow. "'Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books "'surcease of sorrow.' Sorrow for the lost Lenore, for that rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, but nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terror never felt before. So to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, "'some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, "'this it is, and, and, and nothing more. "'Presently my soul grew stronger, "'hesitating then no longer. "'Sir,' said I, or madam, "'truly your forgiveness I implore.' 
But so the fact is I was napping, and so faintly you came rapping, and so gently you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a rapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is someone at my window lattice. Let me see, then, what their is and this mystery explore. Oh, let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind and nothing more. Open here, I flung the shutter. When, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven, of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeyance made he, not a moment stopped or stayed he, but with mane of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance he wore. Though thy grave be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such name as Nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the pallid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. 
On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless said I, what it utters is its only stock and store. Caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, never more. But the raven, still beguiling my sad soul into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door, then upon the velvet sinking I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, with his grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore, what it meant in croaking, nevermore. <clears throat> this I said engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I set divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight floated o'er, but whose velvet-violet lining, with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press uh, nevermore. Then, methought, the air grew denser, perfumed from some unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tiled floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite and nepenthe thee from these memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget I lost Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent, or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still of bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels named Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Well, be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked upstarting. 
Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of the lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit that bust above the door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on that pallid bust of palace just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul, from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor, shall be lifted nevermore. Hey, true believers, this is Stanley, and on behalf of QuickStopEntertainment.com, I want to wish you all a happy Halloween. Excelsior! <laughs> <laughs>